in our series, Heart and Soul, and this is week two. And I wanna highlight first our vision. We went over this in detail last week, but the vision, and this is something I wrote down six years ago and it's carried us through to today. Our church exists to bring people into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that equips and empowers them to become who they were created to be through an authentic life of faith. That's the full-on vision. The mission, the mission of Grace Family Church is to be a strong, positive, spirit-filled, legacy-building ministry which, um, that believes in the power of Christ to transform lives, is contemporary in nature and so compassionate that people are drawn from every area of culture into a loving circle of hope where answers are found and acceptance is given. So let me nail this down, a few points here. Uh, there's a few words that were very intentional for us to write down. Strong, positive, spirit-filled, legacy building. Those are, were all very intentional. We crafted this, this paragraph. Those were all very intentional. There are a lot of churches and a lot of ministries that are weak. Man, they don't really do much with the resources that God's given them. There's no influence or impact in the community. They're not a strong advocate for the gospel. They're just kind of there, and they hope that if they hang their shingle that people will show up. We decided early on that we would be strong in everything that we did. We would have a strong endeavor to actually make an impact in our community, and we've done that over the last few years. Positive, man, that we are positive in everything that we do, that we put out a good vibe, a positive vibe, that we're people that are so positive that folks want to be drawn to us. That when you come in the door, it's not about judgment. Uh, it's, it's not about someone looking you up and down and hoping that you fit the part. It's really about a positive atmosphere. So positive that we're not fighting over the same little collective that hops from one church to the next. That's one of the worst things that I see happening in the body of Christ and even in the Quad Cities locally is that there's a negative side to ministry that's one church just fighting against the other church to try to steal away some members to help their membership come up. We never want to be those people. We don't want to be folks who are just trying to, you know, make our ship bigger while another ship sinks. We want to be positive in all areas. And then spirit-filled, we believe that God has gifted each one of us individually with gifts from heaven and that we can experience those. I don't have time to teach through all of those, but we do believe that God empowers us with gift sets. And in that, if there's something that you're not experiencing, that a brother of yours or a sister of yours is experiencing, the Bible also tells us to seek passionately or fervently after all the gifts so it doesn't give us a way out, that we are to experience all the gifts of God to some degree in our life and at some point in time. And to be legacy building. Listen, if this church ends with Lori and I, we did a bad job. If this church folds someday when I'm dead and gone, they bury me on a hill in Davenport somewhere. If, if this church doesn't move past us, we screwed up in a big way. We didn't lay a deep enough foundation. We do believe that when God calls a ministry to start up from the ground up, from to be birthed from nothing into something, that he does it for longevity. He doesn't do it just to pay my, my bills and my mortgage for our lifetime and pay a little bit of retirement so we can live on easy street when we're in our 70s. God does a move in a community through a church or a religious organization so that it is viable from generation to generation. It has longevity. It, we really thought through the idea of legacy building when we started the church. There's a few fun factoids there, a few little things that we wanted to throw out so you understood maybe the mission a little deeper. But today we want to get into maybe the core of our message and it's answering the question of what matters to God. You know, last week we talked about the idea that people matter, and they do. But what people matter to God? 
What specific people mattered to God? All people to some degree, but God's really specific even at times in how he places uh, the, the, the hierarchy of what matters to him. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 19 and verse 10. Now, God does love everyone, I'm gonna, but I'm gonna get real specific here in a minute. God loves everyone. God wants everyone to be a part of the family. God is intent on you and I doing what he's called us to do and having good and favorable outcomes because of it. But there really is someone who's on his heart more than others. There really is a group of people who are on his, the front of his mind more than others. In fact, in verse 10, it says this, for the son of man came to seek and save that which was lost. Those that are far from God, he is very intentional about. Listen, he's already set up. If you're part of the family, if you're a believer in Christ, if you've accepted him as Lord and Savior of your life, if you've come to that saving knowledge of Jesus, you're part of the family. He has literally opened up the door to heaven and said, all this is already yours. Go and have your fill. But then he has marching orders for each one of us. That there are those who are in our community, in our sphere of influence, who don't know him. They haven't accepted Jesus yet. They haven't come to the saving knowledge of Christ yet. And he says this is the sole reason the Son of Man came. This is the sole reason that Jesus came was to seek and save the lost. Let me give you a short story of how this all started. In Genesis, God creates man. God creates man and woman. He creates man as he carves him out of the dust of the ground and then he breathes life into him. Then he takes a rib from the man and he creates woman or of the same essence. Not that she is less than he is, but so that she can shoulder the burden of life together because life is hard by nature. It wasn't intended to be that way. They lived in the garden in perfect peace and harmony with God, but there was one thing God said don't do. He gave Adam and Eve a choice not to give them a choice so that he could watch them fail, but to give them a choice so they could prove their love and trust in him. He said, listen, if you trust me, if you love me, there's one thing I'm just asking you not to do. And they were fine for a while until God's enemy, the adversary of all things good, the one they call Satan, whispered into the ear of the man and the woman. And he said, listen, God's holding something back from you. If you eat from that fruit, that forbidden fruit, you'll see like God sees. You'll see exactly what he sees. And God said, if you eat from that, from that tree, ultimately death will come. You might see things from a different vantage point, but ultimately death will come. Well, they decided to side with God's arch enemy and his sovereignty he knew this was going to happen, but he had to create man with a choice, with a choice of what to do with the love and trust that God had given them. He had to create man with a choice, otherwise we would be nothing more than mindless robots. We would be forced into servitude, and that is not love. If I called to my wife when we were dating and said, Lori, you have to marry me, and you have to do what I tell you, and you have to be affectionate towards me, and you have to do exactly what I ask of you, nothing in that relationship would be love. Most of us would categorize that as abuse. Most of us would categorize that as great abuse. Yet that's how the first portion of the book of the Bible turns out. It turns out that God gave man and woman a choice and giving them a choice, they ultimately sinned against him. God knew they were going to do that. And in his ultimate love and rescue of humanity, he set out for an alternative. And that altern the alternative was Jesus. That Jesus would come to earth. He would play out a long history of man trying to reconcile his way back to God, trying to do everything right under his own power to reconcile himself back to God in nothing but a futile attempt. And God is saying to us that in our own strength and power, we can't get there on our own. But 
When he sent his son Jesus, he sent him with a mission to seek and to save that which was lost, to find those who are far from God, to pull them into the family and to bring them to that saving knowledge of Jesus. And so then we have to ask ourselves the hard question, if something matters or it has great value to God, shouldn't it have great value to me? Does what matter to God most matter to me? Does what matters to God most, those who are lost, seeking and saving those who are lost, does that matter to me? If his purpose is first, if his, if his purpose is first sorry, how do we pray, believe, act for that purpose? If his purpose in our life is first, if we say, God, I submit to you, there's one aspect of coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus. Like when you, when you die, you know, you go straight to heaven. You pass go, you collect your $200 and straight to heaven. It's a good thing to understand the saving knowledge of Jesus. It's a good thing to have our ticket to heaven. But some of us, that's the only aspect of salvation that we know. We don't know the flip side to the coin that is his lordship and in his, is in his lordship over our life in him ruling and reigning over our life, that he gets to make the decisions, that he gets to tell us what our priorities and what aren't, that he gets to refashion our perspective. See, there are a lot of folks who live with their ticket to heaven, but they don't live in a new perspective that Jesus is Lord. And if what matters to him matters to us, at some point he becomes Lord, and what is his primary objective becomes our primary objective. And let me illustrate this with Luke chapter nine. I'm gonna to go to chapter nine and chapter 10 because they really weren't uh, delineations in the way it was originally written. But Luke chapter nine, verse 59 through 62, and then Luke 10, one and two. And 59 says this, this is Jesus talking. He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury the dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And still another said, I'm willing to follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one that puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom. And here's verse, or chapter 10 and verse one. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them out two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest, therefore to send or to thrust in workers into the harvest field. This is a narrative that we see playing out. Jesus is trying to spread the gospel. He's trying to spread the message of redemption that he was set on earth to spread and there were folks who were asking God, how do, how do I get on the team? Like, how do I get on the team? I believe you're the Messiah. I believe you're God. I believe you're God incarnate in flesh. How do I get on this team? How do I do something for the team? And Jesus' first response was, listen, follow me, change the perspective. And one gentleman spoke up and said, listen, I got a dad who's sick and I got to bury the dead. What should I do? He said, listen, leave the dead alone. Let the dead bury the dead. You need to have a different perspective and follow me. This wasn't a comment from Jesus that was about disrespecting those who have passed on, but he was saying, don't get caught up in the futile things of this world. Don't get caught up in things that are already dead and passed anyway. Move beyond that. You have a new perspective. Change your lens, change your viewpoint, change the way you see things. Yet another man 
asks a good question. Shouldn't I go back and say goodbye to my family? He says, listen, once you put your hands to this plow, it's not time to look back. He wasn't saying don't go say goodbye. He was saying when you commit, it's not about constantly running back and forth from the old life to the new life, from the old life to the new life, old perspective, new perspective. He said, once you commit, put your hands to the plow, you stay steadfast. You stay on this track and on this target with me. He looked at the group of people that he had amassed and he started to send them out two by two in areas where he would go as forerunners for the gospel to proclaim that the Messiah was coming, that Jesus was coming, much like we get to do in our everyday lives. But then he said, listen, there's a prayer you need to pray. Pray, pray to the Lord of the harvest. There is one who lords over or rules over the harvest and the harvest not being grain or wheat, but being people, that there would be those, even though the workers are few, there would be those who are called of God to come in and cut down the harvest and reap what has been sown. And this is the narrative we get of Jesus that, that Jesus gives of what it is to have an eternal perspective, that we start to look at life a little differently, that the things that used to hold us bondage or the things that used to hold our attention or the old life that we had, that we had kind of come accustomed to, that we learn to give that up for a different perspective, that we learn to give that up because people matter. When we say people matter in this church, it's not a cliched statement like saying, well, you matter to God, hallelujah. Brother, your feelings matter. Hope you felt good today, sister. I don't care how you feel. Some of you have been Christians for a long time and you have been in a church for a long time and you might get offended by things I say and I don't care. Listen, there's a reason I don't care. I have a mission. There are people out there who matter to God. There are those who come in the door of this church every single week who are far from him. And if what I'm preaching offends you but grips their heart and calls them into the kingdom, then so be it, it was worth it. It's not that I don't care if I offend you to some degree. It's that I don't care that you are in your, your, your space of feel good that you've been in way too long. Sometimes we need to get a different perspective of what is going on in the world around us so that we have a different reason for living, that we have a different reason for being, that we have a different reason for our everyday life. Because it matters to God that we would be those instruments that are thrust into the harvest field. Now, we know a lot about this in this area. We know a lot about harvesting in this area. Sometimes we look over it, but we know a ton about what it looks like for a field to be harvested. In fact, you can drive down the highway here and see one corn row after another. In the middle of the summer, you're gonna see corn much taller than you or I, and you can drive down that row, drive down those rows during harvest time and watch massive vehicles tend to those fields, cut down those stalks, and start to process that grain. You can literally watch the process happen every single year. We understand what it is to harvest. In fact, we so understand what it is to harvest that one of the greatest harvesting implementation companies in the world, the forerunner to them all, is right here in our backyard. Everyone looks to the Quad Cities to how to best harvest the fields that they've planted. 
yet on a spiritual level, the Quad Cities is 27th least church cities in America. So we haven't done our job in a spiritual perspective on what it is to be harvesters. We understand in a natural perspective what it is to harvest. Some of you even work for John Deere. You maybe even work at the harvester plant, a plant literally named after the concept of harvesting the grain, of harvesting the corn. Yet we on a spiritual level have not done the job we could do, have not done the job we could do of changing our eternal perspective to understanding that we are implementations. We are tools used to cut down the harvest in our culture and in our area and in our region. That we can have a different perspective that what matters to God most can matter to us. Now this, listen, this is not about uh, being so caught up in who's gonna get saved today that we just gotta run around like a crazy person. You know Jesus? I don't know if you know Jesus. Let me find the next one. And just going down the list, we have to be wise. The Bible says that we are as cunning as serpents, but we are as harmless as doves. That we learn to be wise in our attempts and how we, we bring Jesus in the light of the gospel message to the people around us. But it still has to be in the forefront of our mind because people matter. So if we have a different understanding of what a harvest is, of what it is to harvest people, of what it is to bring in the greatest resource that this world has and offer it to God as an offering or a sacrifice, if that's our goal, if that's our eternal perspective, how do we pray? What are the, what are the prayers that we use? What actually happens on a spiritual plane when we activate this idea, when we jump into with full force the concept of reaching people and changing lives. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 and 4, we're going to read in the New Living Bible. And it says this, if the good news or the gospel we're pre we preach is hidden to anyone, it is hidden from the one who is on the road to eternal death. Satan, who is the God of this world, has made him blind, unable to see the glorious light of the gospel that is shining upon him, or to understand the amazing message we preach about the glory of Christ, who is God. So this is, this is literally how the Bible frames the argument of what do we do with an area that isn't experiencing salvation the way God intends it? What do we do with an area whose laborers are few and we're praying to the Lord of the harvest to thrust in the sickle to start to reap a great harvest? How do we start to pray? Well, he says very simply that there is an authority that is blinding the eyes of the people. The Bible Bible calls it the great adversary of God or Satan. In the Greek, it's Satan. It's really not that hard to understand. That God is saying that there's an evil power, that there's an evil presence over the world that's blinded the hearts of men. That there are those who are far from God, not because of any effort of their own. They're not far from God because they've legitimately outright rejected him. They're not far from God because they're bad people. They're not far from God because of their tattoos, and they're not far from God because they're gay. They're far from God because their heart has been darkened, because there's an authority in this world that has blinded their eyes, and it's our job to take authority, to take our right stance and say, no, devil, not here, not today, not in this place, not in this region that we are to pray 
before the glorious light of this gospel that is already shining on them. Listen, the scripture is very clear that there's a light even to those who are lost that is shining on them. They just need the scales to fall from their eyes that we have a message of amazing grace that is the glory of Christ who is our God and that if they will be open to that message that their lives will be changed that the world around them will be changed. They'll see things with a different perspective. We need to learn to take authority over the God of this world. That might sound weird and spiritual and spooky, but we all know oppressive powers when we feel them. We all know oppressive moments spiritually when we feel them, the weight and the heaviness that comes when we feel even depression that might come in our lives or another person's lives, or maybe we feel the darkness of someone who is strayed or is far from God, and we feel that pressure over them. We know what it is to feel on a spiritual plane when someone's eyes have been darkened, when their heart is darkened. It's our job not to speak to that person and tell them how dirty and rotten, how much of a sinner they are. It's our job to pray that that be lifted. It's our job to pray that the scales fall from their eyes. It's our job to pray that God would illuminate their path so that they can see him and the full message and weight of the gospel. It's our job to take that authority so how does God bring this to pass? Well, obviously he's gonna use us. The Bible's real clear that, that well, while Christ was on the cross, that God was reconciling the world to himself, not reconciling himself to the world. He wasn't fixing his mindset or his perspective or his view of the world so that he could finally go to us. He was fixing the world. He was making the world right. He was setting us to right so that we could come to him in the same way we house in us we house in us as vessels of honor the person of God. That person of God, the Holy Spirit, the God that lives on the inside of us, that God will call men, draw them into our path so that we can present them the full gospel. Most of us, when we look for opportunities to really like evangelize, when we look for opportunities to see life change happen, here's how we pray. God, just show me the one. Show me the one. Let the light go off. Show me the one. We're hoping that heaven will bring down a spotlight and that one person will be singled out and that's the guy that we're supposed to go preach to. That's the guy that we're supposed to have a conversation with. That's not generally how it happens. How it generally happens is that God brings people into our life who are ready. That God brings people into our life who we're to pray for. That God brings people into our life who we're to stand in the gap for and believe that the scales fall from their eyes. And those are the ones that he calls to us. Romans chapter 10 and verse 13 and through verse 14 in the NIV says it this way. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved how can they call on the one who they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one who they have not heard? And how can they hear unless they have someone to preach to them? We forget that we have a voice that matters. You have a voice that matters. You have a voice in your circle of influence that really does matter. The teller that you see at Walmart is someone who you can speak to. The neighbor next door to you who used to hear you fighting and grumbling with your spouse constantly and now sees a marriage that's restored, that's a person who needs to hear of the gospel message. 
The person at your work who saw you hobbling around and sick, but now sees you healthy and whole, that's a person who needs to hear the gospel message because the Bible's real clear here. How can they hear without someone to preach to them? You're the preaching person. Too often, we allow only the pulpit to be the place where the gospel is preached, yet God's called each one of us to proclaim the gospel. How can they believe on him whom they have not heard and how can they call on him who they have not believed? Listen, if we're gonna get someone to the place where they have believed in Jesus, they're gonna have to hear the message and the message comes through each and every one of us. We are that someone to preach and to proclaim the gospel. We are that someone who don't just say people matter because it sounds good, right? It's easy for a church, it's easy for a collective of people to say, well, people matter, your feelings matter, you matter to God, hallelujah. You're, you're a person of dignity and worth and you matter to Jesus. Let's go. And there's no power in it. There's no strength in it. There's nothing of substance in it because what is the difference? Eternal perspective. Do people matter so much that we will be like Christ and be self-sacrificing and go after them where they are or do they matter so little that they'll pass us by and we won't have a second thought of their eternal nature? Are we those who are doing everything we can to allow God to draw to us the populace around us so that we can preach the gospel? Are we like that horse at the gate, just ready for it to be opened so we can run our race? Or are we those who are scared and skittish and still in our stalls and hoping that we're not called on and picked on to run the race that God's put before us? We have to ask ourselves the real questions when it comes to mission and vision. If we believe that we are reaching people and changing lives and if people are the target, then people matter. And what people matter most to God? Those who are far from him. Those are the ones on the top of his mind. Those are the ones on the top of his awareness. Those are the ones that keep him up at night if God sleeps at all. Those are the ones who he thinks about constantly. Those are the ones who's impressed upon him as scars that are on his hand, much like tattoos that are a constant reminder of those he bled and died for. Those are the ones that he seeks after and that he saves. And we have to have a different perspective. We have to have a perspective that's not just all about us, all about our ticket to heaven, all about our ticket to ride. We need to have a, a perspective that is about someone else and their value, their dignity, and their worth as being a trophy for us to bring into the master's hands, that they are those who we can see their lives changed because of the gospel preached from our lips and from our lives. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9 and 6. Actually, no, let me go to John chapter 6 and verse 44. It says this, no one can come unto me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day God gives the increase, not us. Listen, no one in this world can come to Jesus unless the Father draws them, unless he woos them, unless he pulls on their heartstrings. This is not about predestination, this is about an understanding of how the whole system works. That in, if someone comes to a saving knowledge in Jesus, it's not because you're a good preacher. It's not because the church sermon was amazing. It's not because your story is more compelling than your neighbor's. It's not because of anything of our own. It's because God drew them first and he knew just the person to put them in front of. He knew just the person to put them next to to hear this gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 6 and 9 through 9, it says, I planted, 
Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. Listen, we get so tense in church. Well, this church and that church and this doctrine and that doctrine, and we get so tense in the idea of church that, you know, Christians tend to be those who shoot their wounded and eat their dead. We tend to be those who are so savvy at knocking our brother off of his pedestal while trying to attain the next rung on the ladder, and it's wrong. In fact, this is what Paul's talking to. He's saying, listen, the mission of the church is not to knock this one, to build this one up. He said, one's gonna plant, one's gonna water. God gives the increase, leave it to him. There are people who come through this door who we get to water the seedbed of their life. And some of them leave and are planted in other churches. There's a particular family who came through this door when we first started the church. They're great people. Man, I loved them so much. I was hoping they were gonna stay forever and they didn't. I was mad, told God that he was unfair because he put him in a church that was bigger and was flourishing, had a lot of history, had a lot of other people with a lot of really good talents. And I was like, God, that's not fair. We need that kind of person here. He said, no, I, I give the increase. No, no, you watered. You watered what was planted, but I give the increase. You did your job. They needed that hook back into the family of God, but I give the increase. I'll put them where I want them. We get frustrated at times when things don't go the way we want them to. We get frustrated at times when things don't look the part, yet God says if we'll have an eternal perspective, he's the one who will ultimately bring the increase. There's a tenant of, of Grace Family Church, a part of our DNA that's very important to us. It's the idea that we value growing. We value growth. We value you growing as an individual. This message is about you growing as an individual, that you grow past the place of where we're just thinking about ourselves and our selfish needs and desires. We grow to a different perspective. We're eternally minded. We're thinking of others. Our focus becomes others. Our focus becomes those who are lost so that they can be sought and saved by the grace of the gospel. That's growth in our life. In fact, we are so committed to growth that it moves us into relationship. First, our relationship with God. We believe that if you grow in your relationship with God, if you grow and understand healing, that that's a growth in your relationship. That if you grow and understand deliverance of God, that's a growth in your relationship. If you grow and understand any aspect of God, his grace, his love, his wisdom, that's growth. But growth leads us to relationship. Not just relationship with our father, but relationship with others. So when I get to know more about Jesus, it should spur on other relationships. When I get to know more about God's wisdom, I should want to tell somebody about it and experience relationship based on where I've grown. When I grow in an aspect of God's healing, then I should want to experience that with somebody else in relationship. Growth, we value growing, causes the church to grow, you individually to grow, but more than that, it causes community to grow so that we are interconnected in different facets, that we have 
pieces of each other's story embedded in our heart and it helps us become more and more eternally focused because we start to hear the story of those who were lost, who were far from God, whose homes were broken, whose lives were in shambles and we get to see what God did in his restoring power. And the reason we value growth is because Jesus is extremely envious of his bride. He is extremely envious of a bride who would walk away and have a different perspective. He's extremely envious of his bride who would walk away and have a different focus. Man, you know what this is like when you're watching football and it's your favorite team and they're in the playoffs and they got beat yesterday. I don't know whose team that was, but there was a few. The Cowboys got beat, which, <laughs> anyway, if you're a Cowboys fan. <laughs> you can tell I'm not a Cowboys fan. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> but you know what it's like when you're sitting there watching your favorite team, and you're, they're just having the best game ever, and your wife's like, yeah, uh, can we watch some Lifetime movie? You're like, Seriously? <laughs> There's no way in the world this TV is changing. There's no way in the world this channel's changing. My favorite team's on, they're doing awesome. It's the playoffs, come on. We gotta watch to the end. We know what it's like to be envious of that Lifetime movie. How come she doesn't wanna sit here and enjoy this with me? How come she doesn't understand this means a lot to me? It should mean something to her. I know it's just a football game, but come on, I'm inspired, I'm excited, I'm revved up. How come it doesn't mean anything to her? This is the same way, or, or this is akin to what God feels when our perspective is different than his. When he's in the game, man, and he's rooting for the team, and he's seeing all the pieces and all the puzzle pieces come together, and he's watching lives be, being changed by the gospel, and he's watching an area be affected by the gospel, and we're sitting on the sidelines going, yeah, I'd rather do something else. This eternal perspective, it changes the way we look at life. Some of us need a great marriage retreat with our bride, our groom bride. We need a great marriage retreat. We need to get away and find out what matters to him so that it can matter to us. We need to get away with him so that we can find out what moves his heart starts to move our heart. We forget that we can get so close to his presence, so close to the Holy Spirit, that when he's grieved, we're grieved. That when he's happy, we're happy. Have you ever had that intense moment in prayer where you, you commune with God and you're like, man, you're in a different mood today. You can feel it and you can feel that connection. And there are moments in time where you can feel his heart breaking for this world and it breaks yours. There's a difference in perspective. James chapter, uh, chapter four, I believe, verse six. I forgot to write that down. James chapter four, six through 10. It says, but he gives us more grace this is what scripture says. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, wail. Change your laughter into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. It's a rough scripture to read through. That James is saying that there's an aspect of our life that we should put away and that we should mourn it, we should grieve it. There's the old man, there's the dead man that we should put away and we should grieve. We, not because he's dead, but because of what he went through. Not because he, he's, he was far from necessarily the plan and the purpose of God, but because of how far he was and that it was all on selfish will and selfishly imposed. 
that we should learn to mourn and to grieve in a state of humility so that God can raise us up, that we would resist the devil and he'll flee from us. Listen, the devil's main purpose in life, for those of you who are saved, kill, still, destroy. Kill, still, and destroy. He's not here to kill you personally. He's not here to kill kill your body. Once you, once you die and pass on, if you're in Jesus, you go to heaven, you win anyway. There's nothing that he can destroy other than one thing that God can't rebuild. There's nothing that he can steal away from you that God hasn't promised other than one thing that he'll give back to you in greater measure. When the enemy, when we hear this line that the enemy's out there roaring like a, like a prowling lion and seeking who he's going to kill, steal, and destroy, it's all about influence. If God can take away your influence, if he can kill your influence, if he can steal it away, if he can destroy your influence, he can silence your voice. And it literally takes resurrection power many times to bring that back into our communities, into our spheres of influence. That's why in James he says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Resist the devil, not so you're, you're, you're sideways of temptation, not resist the devil so you don't stumble and sin again, although that's part of it. Resist the devil so that you can keep strong the influence you have, so that you can keep strong the influence you have in your everyday life, so that when you speak of the gospel, it doesn't fall on deaf ears, so that when you speak of the glorious nature of our God, it doesn't fall on hard hearts. Learn that your influence is the greatest thing that matters in the lives of the individuals around you. That when you can walk into a room and change the atmosphere because your influence is impactful, then you know that harvest field is ripe for the gospel. Then you know God can use you as that instrument to thrust in that sickle and to reap a harvest. But we've got to start to learn to change the atmosphere. That doesn't mean you become a person totally different than who you are. That means you start to use your influence for the gospel, that your purpose, that your, 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 your goal in life has started to shift, that people matter to God, that those who are far from him matter to God. This is what it means to go after the least of these. We get so caught up in our social justice uh, uh, concepts and we think that the least of these are always those who are poor and those who are indigent and those without. At times, yes, those are the least of these. But more often what the scripture is saying is giving us a perspective change that the least of these are those who are the farthest from God. That the least of these, as was written about the poor and those who are indigent, that was a sign in the Jewish community of those being far from covenant. That's all that really means. It's really not talking about their means or their, or their financial status. It was talking about those far from covenant, that if we would understand those far from covenant, those are the least of these. Those are the one that he would leave the 99 for to go after. Those are the ones who are constantly on his mind. We need to change our perspective this morning. It's a hard message at times, change your perspective, change the way you view life, change what matters. It's a hard message. It's a good message though. Like I said before, I don't care if I offend some of you. Again, some of you, you've been saved so long. You know you're going to heaven. You, you love Jesus, man. You are all in this thing. You are in this Christian life without fail. You have put it all away for Jesus. And you've done that for a long time. If you get offended, what happens? You still go to heaven when this life is over. 
But if I can get the hooks of the gospel into somebody, if I can get you so fired up, you're so offended, you talk about that stinking pastor, I can't believe he delivered such a hard message on Sunday, he wants me to change my perspective, what an idiot. If you start talking about that every day at your work, if you start talking about that every day in your sphere of influence, man, I hope I offended you so much you bring 10 people to church. I hope I offended you so much that you can't help but talk about what's going on here. I hope to God I could offend you enough that you would actually get off your butt and go after people because they matter. Listen, comes to a point in our lives where people matter or they don't. The gospel matters or it doesn't. Jesus is Lord or he isn't. At some point, we have to reconcile this very simple fact. If Jesus isn't Lord of our whole life, he's Lord over nothing. But we love to, ki to kid ourselves and to claim that the compartmentalized areas of our life that we've given to him, that that's good enough for him to be Lord over. No, he is either Lord of the whole thing or nothing at all. That is what it means for him to be preeminent. He is either first or he is nothing. He can't be second, he can't be third, and he definitely can't be last. He is either first or not at all. So this morning, I wanna encourage you, change your perspective. What matters to God should matter to you. What matters to God are people who are lost. What matters to God are people who are far from him. What matters to God are those who don't understand, haven't accepted, aren't in the family of believers. They haven't really gripped this gospel. That's what matters. And as a church, as a community, and as an individual, I believe we should go after that. We should go after people, man, and not make any bones about it. Blue hair, tattooed, piercings, businessmen, garbage collectors, doctors. I don't care who they are or where they come from. We should go after people and every person the same because people matter.